0: That was a great song to sing in advance of uh, today's message. I think sometimes when we get into uh, the stretch of scripture that we're into right now, Romans 9 through 11, um, we get so caught up in the doctrines of election themselves that we forget that they're predicated on or they're based on, they're built upon the gospel. They're built upon the fact that God sent forth his son into the world. He didn't need to do this, but he did. He sent his son into the world to live a perfect life, completely spotless and without sin, righteous in every way. And then he chose to carry our sins in his body to be nailed, himself and us with him, our sins in him, to the cross while he received the full wrath of God in our place. And if we lose track of that, I mean, that's basically Romans 1 through 8, then we can begin to judge God rather than worship him. When we get into the doctrines of election, we can say, well, God shouldn't do it this way, or he shouldn't do it that way, and I don't, I don't agree with God. I don't like the way he's going about this. And we can begin to put ourselves above God when it's God who came to save us. And so everything that we have is a gift. Everything that we have we don't deserve. Everything that we have is, is just God's mercy and compassion overflowing from heaven into and onto us. And so let's keep that perspective as we consider the doctrines of election. Now I will acknowledge, as I have I think every week, that this is not an easy set of doctrines to understand. And we're gonna see that again today. Uh, Nor is it easy to embrace emotionally. But the great anecdote to all of this is to remember what comes first. The gospel comes first. God has saved us because he loves us. We can only love him because he first loved us. So with that in mind, I'm not going to review all of Romans today. You get a break from the big macro review uh, and I'm going to sort of step back a little bit and summarize where we've been in Romans 9 uh, so far and just the first part of Romans 10 because what I, what I think is really important for us for today's message is to focus in on the doctrines of election. What, what are the big building blocks? Not the minor details about justice and fairness and so on, but what are the big pieces? Let's put those big pieces in place and then build on top of those big pieces. So really there's four big blocks that we've laid already as a foundation for understanding chapters 10 and 11 in Romans. And the very first big block that we laid down was that God elected Israel. And He elected Israel as a nation, He elected Israel as a group, Uh, And he has not ever chosen another nation the way he chose Israel. There is no other nation, no other group in the history of the world that has been chosen by God the way God chose Israel. God is, or Israel is God's chosen nation. And he cut a covenant with the nation. And I think that's just really helpful for us to keep our mind on that. This week and next week, especially. Especially next week but there is no nation that God has chosen or elected the way he has elected Israel. He hasn't entered into a relationship with Canada the way he entered into a relationship with Israel. He has not entered into a relationship with the Netherlands the way he has entered into a relationship with Israel. He has not entered into a relationship with Uh, The United States, that might be news to some of them. The way that he entered into a, a, a relationship with Israel. Israel is God's chosen nation. That's it. And show me any other group that has been chosen in the Bible the way Israel had been chosen. Now I stress that because we're going to be talking about the church in Israel, especially next week, and even the church doesn't have, we're not a new thing. Let me just put it to you that way, and we'll get to the rest next week. But the very first building block is Israel. Israel's is the, the one group that God has elected to be in covenant with. Now the rest of chapter 9 really then changes focus. Now this, this change in focus is crucial for proper interpretation of these chapters. Paul having established that Israel is the chosen nation then changes focus and he says I want to talk not about God's election of groups but election of individuals. And the two are not the same. God elects to work in history through the nation Israel as a group, and he also chooses to bless eternally with salvation and righteousness particular individuals. These are two related but not identical concepts. The corporate election of Israel versus the individual election of others. And so there's two blocks I want to put on top of this first one that God has elected Israel. Now I want to put two blocks on top of that one. The first one is God has individually elected a remnant of Israelites. That is, going all the way back to Abraham, not every Israelite has been individually elected to share in eternal blessings, even though they're a part of the elect group. So in every generation, there's a remnant of Israelites there's a remnant of Jews in every generation, even in the church age, that God has individually elected unto salvation. Now that makes sense, right? It makes sense that God would choose some Israelites for salvation because they're a part of the elect group. Now we might want to talk about justice and fairness, about what about the rest of the Israelites that are not individually elected, but we've done that already, so you have to go back and listen to that. But what's unexpected, although it is prophesied in the Old Testament, but what is not intuitive is that God has, and this is the third block that we talked about, God has also elected some Gentiles for this very same individual salvation. We're not a part of the elect group, but God has chosen some who are not a part of the nation of Israel to share in the covenant blessings that God promised to Israel and has given to the remnant of Israelites individually elected. Now, what is a Gentile? I haven't defined Gentiles, and I'm sorry about that, if you're not sure what a Gentile is. A Gentile is any person who is not a Jew. So if you're not Jewish, if you're not an Israelite, then you're a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. And, and, And most of us are Gentiles. There may be a couple Jewish believers here. I know of one. So, as a Gentile, I'm, I'm outside of the group that God has elected for blessings. Nevertheless, God has individually elected me, and individually you, and we get to share individually in the same blessings that God has reserved for those individual Israelites that form the remnant that receive His blessing. And that's, that's not intuitive because we're not even a part of the elect group. But That's the third block. The fourth block, which now is dealing with the non-remnant Israel, so we're, we're now shifting back. And in these chapters, Paul's going back and forth. Now we're looking at individually those who are not part of the elect remnant within Israel. So Israelites or Jews that are not a part of the remnant that receive eternal salvation. And what Paul said of them is he says they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is, being part of the elect group, they thought that being a part of the elect group was sufficient for their individual salvation and blessing. And Paul says, you've got it all wrong. It's not about being a part of that group. Because even Gentiles have been put into, uh, into God's covenant blessings. And, and the, the non-remnant some Jews who have tried to earn their righteousness and salvation by works have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They thought if we just keep the law that God gave us through Moses, then we will be saved for eternal life. Now, they're not totally wrong except that nobody has kept the law perfectly except for one Jew. There's only one Jew and also, one human being, who's one and the same person, who has ever merited salvation eternal life. There's only one man who's saved by works, and that is Jesus Christ himself, because he didn't sin. So the rest of Israel, and Paul, this is what makes these chapters confusing, Paul will talk of this non-remnant Israel, those in that group of individual Israelites that are not part of the remnant that are saved, he will refer to them corporately as Israel. So Israel, and by that we mean non-elect individuals that form up the nation of Israel, not, not including the remnant of individual Jews who have been saved, have tried to earn their place in God's kingdom by keeping the law. And Paul says no one can earn a place in God's kingdom that way because we have all sinned. Now, if that is clear, then we're ready to move on. I'm tempted to do a Q&A right now, but that's what we've established. So, okay, let's just try and do it, do it really quick. God has elected one group. This group is the nation of Israel. He's going to save the world through this group. He has chosen some individuals in that group, which we call the remnant, to receive individual eternal life and righteousness, which we call salvation. He has also chosen Gentiles who are not a part of that elect group to receive the same blessing that the remnant of Israelites gets, that is eternal life and salvation. The rest of Israel, who is not a part of the remnant, That have not been individually elected for salvation they've tried to earn god's favor by the things that they do therefore they're cut off from christ and if cut off from christ cut off from god that's what we've done so far this is why i've stressed at the beginning you can't miss a week and you have to maybe even go back and listen to the sermons again i've had to do that uh, because if i'm going to be consistent up here i have to know what did i say last week so, you might have to go back and listen to all these again. This is not easy to understand. Having said that, with all of that in mind, let's read today's passage. It's pretty much all of chapter 10. Would you open to Romans chapter 10? And as you're finding your place, please stand. I'm going to start reading in verse 4 right through to the end of the chapter in verse 21. This is the word of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But They've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, help me to be clear, help me to be compassionate. And where I fail to be clear and where I fail to communicate compassion, I pray that your spirit would more than make up in my deficiency. For the sake of this church and for the sake of the truth, for the sake of your name, God, help us to understand these chapters. Please help us. And then help us to revel in them, even while our heart breaks for those who will not call out in saving faith. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you notice, this text, I mean, this is a tough text. There's uh, six allusions. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six allusions to the Old Testament. We're going to go to one, and I will let you know about the other five. But really, if we're going to go to each Old Testament passage, that's six sermons. So then, you're going to have to go back and verify the things I've said, and then if you have questions, come and and talk to me, okay? So we're going to go to the first one, but then not to the other five. I'll explain them, but then you'll have to go back and and check that what I've said is is trustworthy. So today's section, or text, can be divided into three sections The first is the longest. It seems like every sermon, the first section is the longest. So most of our time is going to have to be given to the first section. And that's verses 5 through 13. And this is really the bedrock for what Paul's then going to go on and talk about regarding Israel. And in these verses, in this first section, Paul contrasts righteousness based on law with righteousness based on faith. Now you'll notice I put hyphens between those words because I just think that helps. We're talking about two concepts. There's a lot of words to say two concepts. The first concept, righteousness based on law. I'll try to say it without breathing. And then the second concept, righteousness based on faith. So each has four words, but so only two concepts. And Paul's going to contrast the two. What what are those two? And then um, in verses 14 through 15... Coming out of that first section, since righteousness is based on faith, then the second main point of today's sermon is the gospel needs to be preached. No one is going to be saved without faith. Faith in what? Faith in the gospel. Therefore, the gospel needs to be preached. And this is a really important point when we're talking about election, because we might say, well, why why even share the gospel? If God chooses, why even do our part to get the gospel to people? Well, those verses answer that question. And then the third main section in today's passage is verses 16 through 21. And this is where Paul comes back to, to the main point. Israel has rejected the gospel. Israel has rejected the gospel. So, today, this is what we're doing. Chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, main point number one. Paul's going to contrast righteousness based on law with righteousness based on faith. Point number two, Romans 10, 14 and 15. The gospel needs to be preached. Point number three, Romans 10, 16 to 21. Even though the gospel has been preached, Israel has rejected the gospel. Let's, let's get started. Point number one, righteousness based on law versus righteousness based on faith. Now before we contrast these things, what I, I think often goes unsaid, it may, it may go unthought or unconsidered, is that the goal of both righteousness based on law and righteousness based on faith is the same. Both approaches are trying to attain the same goal. That, that's important to to remember, And what is the goal? The goal is righteousness. So whether you're trying to achieve righteousness by works or righteousness by faith, the goal is the same. And so when you're reading the Gospels and you see that the Pharisees, I mean, Jesus had a lot to say about the Pharisees, but they had something right. They wanted to attain righteousness. And that's important because if we throw away everything everything about the Pharisees or righteousness based on law, then then we'll say that we're not actually trying to attain righteousness. And if we're not trying to attain righteousness, then we're embracing licentiousness. And what is licentiousness? License is the root of that word. It's when we give ourselves license to sin. So the gospel is not an abandonment of righteousness. The gospel is how do you actually attain that righteousness? So whether you are seeking a righteousness based on law or a righteousness based on faith, in both approaches the goal is righteousness. Let's just remind ourselves what is righteousness. So what is the goal that we're trying to achieve? There's two parts to righteousness. There's the legal standing before God, a righteous legal standing, which is positional. That is, God declares you to be righteous. And then there's the the ontological righteousness, which is just a fancy word for nature. That is that you're actually righteous in your very nature. So the goal here is to be a righteous person in our nature and to have a righteous standing before God. To have a righteous standing before God is for God to look at your life and see, not only do I not see sin, I see an abundance of good works. Which we get vicariously through Christ. The good works that Christ did in his life are credited to our account. We can't go back and re preach Romans 4 and 5. But that's Romans 4 and 5. So, both righteousness based on law and righteousness based on faith are pursuing a righteous legal standing before God and a righteous nature. So what is righteousness based on the law? I I think with my little preamble, you could probably guess. It's in verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on law. Just pause there. Where does Moses write about it? In the law, right? In the the Mosaic law. In, In the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So Moses writes about this. Paul says... And then he quotes from Leviticus 18.5, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now we're not going back to Leviticus 18.5, we're going to go back to Deuteronomy in a moment, so this is one you have to go back and check out, but uh, the whole idea here is, if you do what the law says, you will live. You will be blessed. Blessed. And actually, if we step back all the way to the Garden of Eden, if Adam had always done what God had told him to do, he never would have died. So eternal life is directly related to an unsinful life. That if you do God's law perfectly, if you never sin, there's no reason that you should die Because death is the wages for sin. It's not the natural uh, expectation of a human life. Except we've all sinned, so we all die. So the righteousness by law says you're trying to attain righteousness, and with righteousness comes eternal life. If you keep the law, you will attain eternal life. Right? Do Do you see how that goes together? Which means, let's just... Small aside to illustrate the point. So this is an illustration. If we had not killed Jesus, he never would have died as a man. He'd still be alive today. There's no reason for Jesus Christ the man, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary and Joseph, to die because he never sinned. So he would not have grown old. He would not have died of old age. He would not have died of cancer. The only way for him to die was for us to kill him. And so we killed a man that need not die because he kept the law. Those who keep the law will live. That's just a a fact. That's a gospel truth. But here's, here's the problem with that. Who has kept the law? So Paul is pointing out to, to those who would seek a righteousness by law, that's fine. You want to you go down that road? Fine. But who's kept the law? So keeping the law will never work because at some point in your life, even if, let's say starting now, from now until the end, let's say like by God's mercy, God strikes me dead in the next second and from now to then I don't sin, which I probably will. So just starting now, even that doesn't undo a lifetime of sin before. So this whole approach to righteousness is flawed. It's impossible. Who's ever been obedient to obtain eternal life? Whoever has lived sinless perfection, no one but the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's that's one option. Go for it if you want it. But you will die because you've broken the law. And then you'll stand before God and you will not be considered righteous by God and you will be condemned. That's option one. Option two is righteousness by faith. And Paul, for the rest of this passage, is going to try and tell us what righteousness by faith is, which is really a review of Romans. So this is really uh, difficult to exegete, to explain. Exegesis just means to explain explain the scriptures this is very difficult to explain except if we remember we already know all of this this is a review this has already been done in the book of Romans so even though it seems complicated it's it's not new information to us now paul begins when he's going to treat righteousness by faith by telling us what righteousness by faith is not And I'll give you the answer, what righteousness by faith is not, so that we can understand this a little bit more clearly. Righteousness by faith is not tricky. God is not trying to trick us. And this is the accusation that could be leveled against Paul, right, by the Jews. Like, righteousness by law is so much easier to understand. Do what is right, you'll be rewarded. Do what is wrong, you'll be punished. And Paul says, well, fine, go righteousness by law, you'll die and you'll be condemned. And then, but the accusation is, well, you're trying to tell us something that's, that's kind of tricky to understand. It's hidden from us. I, I, I think you're sort of hiding it from us. And that's where he starts. He says, I don't want anyone to accuse me of hiding the truth of how you can attain righteousness. And that is uh, verses six through eight. So let me read those verses. But the righteousness based on faith says... And then he's going to paraphrase and add to Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim, Now these verses cause me so much trouble. I just want to tell you that. They they just don't, there must have been an easier way to say this, Paul. This is not an easy way to make your point. But he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so who am I to judge? But do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Well, let me ask you, who has accused God of that, or who has said that? Who's going to go up to heaven to get Jesus? Who's going to go down into the pit to, get, to bring him up from the dead? Has any of you ever said that? No, no, we don't think that way. We don't talk that way. I have no idea what Paul is saying on my initial read of this. So if you, you have no idea, what does this bringing Jesus down and raising Jesus up have to do? Well, if you have a Jewish mindset, it makes a lot more sense. So this is the one detour into the Old Testament that I'm going to do, and it's going to be fairly quick. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14. What we have to understand is that this is a climactic moment in the Torah. So if you're, if you're an Israelite, if you're a Jew, and Paul starts talking about who will go up into heaven to get it and who will go down into the abyss to retrieve him. Uh, no, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. You, that means nothing to most of us. But if you're a first century Jew, that means a lot. Because this is a climactic moment in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses has given the law to the people, or God through Moses. Then they have lacked the faith to go into the promised land. They spent 40 years going around in the wilderness. Then they're on the edge of the promised land, ready to go in. And Moses gives them the law a second time. And at the end of his sermons, repeating the law to the people, he says, Look, I don't want anyone to say that this has not been crystal clear. I have made this, this is Moses to Israel. I have made this super clear to you. If you mess this up, it's your fault, not mine. That's basically what Moses is saying. So if you're a first century Jew, you know exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is speaking to the people the way Moses spoke to the people. Don't accuse me of making the gospel tricky or hidden. If you don't understand the gospel, that's your own fault. That's what Paul's saying to Israel in Romans. Let's just listen to what Moses says to Israel and then we'll see what Paul says to Israel in Romans. Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. In other words, this law that I'm giving you and telling you to do, it's not hidden up in heaven. It's not on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. I've given it to you. You've got a copy of it in front of you, and we're going to preach it to you. You're going to hear it, and you're going to be teaching it to your kids. This law is accessible to you. That's basically Moses' point. Now, that's why Paul starts here. He wants to say it's the same thing about the gospel. He says, the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart who will go up into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you. What word? The gospel. It's been preached to you. So let me try and tie this up with a bow by putting my own words in Moses' mouth and then my own words in Paul's mouth. Now these are not divinely inspired words, but I think that they'll help you to understand. Moses said to Israel, Don't you tell me that you don't know what to do and what not to do? You don't have to go up to heaven to get the law. You don't have to go across the sea to get the law. I have given you the law. It is so close that it is practically in your mouth and in your heart. You can't get any closer than that. The heart is the center of your person. That's how close it is to you. Therefore, you have no excuse. The law has come to you. Okay, that's Moses to Israel. Now, Paul to Israel. Do not tell me that you do not know the gospel. This is Paul to Israel. You don't have to go up to heaven to get it. Jesus came down to deliver it to you. You don't have to go down into the abyss to look for it. Jesus was raised from the dead to prove it to you. The gospel is so close that it's practically in your mouth and in your heart. Therefore, you have no excuse. The gospel has come to you. Does everyone see what Paul's trying to say? So the first thing, before he starts to talk about the gospel or righteousness based on faith, he says, I want no one, after I'm done talking about this, to say that the gospel's tricky. That the gospel's hidden in heaven. That the gospel's hidden down in some pit. Jesus Christ came from heaven to give you the gospel. He was raised from the pit to prove the gospel. It's not tricky. It's not hidden. The gospel is crystal clear. If you reject it, that's your fault. That's where Paul starts. Paul then proceeds and tells us what a righteousness based on faith is. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. It is, believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins. You believe that, you confess that, you will be saved. In other words, you will be righteous. That is, you will have attained righteousness. What is righteousness? A righteous legal standing before God and a righteous nature. God will take your profession of faith and He will transform it into a legal righteousness and a natural righteousness all by His good pleasure, His mercy, and grace. Do You see why He started with, don't you tell me that this is difficult to understand. The amazing thing about the Gospel is anyone can understand it with a basic comprehension. But then it's infinitely deep. And nuance, so we'll never fully understand it. But nobody can say with basic comprehension, I understand that there are uh, global delays and, and, and other issues that would inhibit somebody from understanding, but with basic comprehension, it's not hard to understand. It's not hidden. Have faith in Christ and you will be saved. And then in verses 12 through 13, Paul tells us who can access this righteousness by faith. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Greek is another word for Gentile. It just means non-Jew. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news, right? Isn't this where we go? This is where we go when we're trying to teach the gospel. You just call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ died in your place and you will be saved. That's the first point. That's the righteousness by faith. If we were to summarize then, righteousness based on law is this, becoming legally and naturally righteous by keeping the law. But who has done that? Only Jesus. Therefore, anyone who tries to be righteous that way will fail. But there's mercifully another way to be made righteous, legally and naturally. And that is the righteousness based on faith. We become legally righteous and naturally righteous by believing what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Okay, so those are the two paths. That's not new information. But that transitions us now to point number two. If then, this is contextually the basis for these verses. If righteousness is by faith in the gospel, then we must preach The gospel. That's the point. The only way to be saved is to have faith in the gospel. Therefore, let's get the gospel out there. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Election does not annul our responsibility to evangelize. This is where (laughs) understanding election gets really uh, difficult to understand, right? On the one hand, we're said God chooses. It's God who has mercy and compassion. It's God who hardens. Uh, God elects. That's chapter 9. Chapter 9 focuses so much on on God's sovereign will, on God's sovereign election. God is in control of who is elect and who is not. That's chapter 9, right? And now we get to chapter 10 and the emphasis has totally flipped and the emphasis is on human responsibility. First, to believe. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel is not hidden from you. You don't have to go up into heaven or down to the abyss. Jesus came to us. He was raised from the dead. If you don't believe it, that's your fault. That's what Paul says above. It's not hidden. And if, if believing is what it takes to be righteous, then we better get the gospel out to people. It's our responsibility, those of us who do believe. We need to go out and proclaim the gospel so that people can hear it. Because if they don't hear it, They can't believe it. And if they don't believe it, they cannot confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And if they don't confess Jesus Christ as Lord, they will not attain righteousness by faith. They will not be saved. Therefore, get out there and preach the gospel. Now, this is a great paradox, isn't it? How do you you put these two things together? I don't know. But they're back to back. So let us never say it is not our responsibility to share the gospel because God elects who will be saved and who will not be saved. The only thing I can say to help you to begin to wrestle with this is this. God elects who will be saved and God also elects the means by which people will be saved. That is, God has chosen who he's going to save. And he has also chosen how he is going to save those people. And how is God going to save those people? By our prayers and by our sharing and preaching of the gospel. And so we have to do our part because we are a part of God's predestined means, about his elected means to get to the people. And so we need to go and share the gospel I mean, imagine if Jesus had said, well, God, you've elected who to save and who not to save. I don't think I'll become a man and die on the cross. We all know that to be ludicrous, right? Because without Jesus on the cross, nobody can be saved. Oh, but God decided who to save in eternity past. Therefore, Jesus on a lazy day says, I've, I, I'm not going. Just save the people you've chosen to save. Now, that's on the level of ridiculous, isn't it? Because we all know that the means of God's election is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. In the same way, the means of God saving people, it's not merely the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, but added to that, now it's not Jesus plus evangelism, but as part of the means, God has predestined us to share the gospel So just as Jesus had to go to the cross for us to be saved, so we have to share the gospel so that people hear it and receive it. The other encouragement I want to give to you is this. Anytime you share the gospel, no matter how bad you butcher it, if the person is elect, the Holy Spirit will take our imperfection, our, our inadequate preaching of the gospel, and he will take it, And he will land it in the heart of the elect so that every time we go out to preach the good news of salvation in Christ alone, we know that the elect will hear and the elect will respond in faith. Because it's not about us. If God was depending on the uh, efficacy and the ability of his preachers and his evangelists then this whole project is doomed from the start. If God needs us to live up to some certain standard, but if God says, no matter how badly you mess this up, I'm going to bring about my predetermined plan, then we can relax. And we can get busy doing what God has called us to do. Let us go out there and share the gospel. And hopefully that takes down some of the anxiety. It's not up to you to save someone. Your job is to just sow the seed. Throw the seed. Throw the seed. And where there's good soil, no matter how bad you are at throwing the seed, if the seed lands in the good soil, it'll produce a crop. It'll germinate. It'll produce a plant. And so we need to not use the gospel, the doctrines of election to stop praying to stop evangelism but to actually see the great comfort there is in election to go out there and be busy evangelists get busy doing the work of the gospel now this brings us to our third and final point Israel rejected the gospel Take a look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? The they, in verse 16, we find out in the broader passage is Israel. Can it be applied to Gentiles? I think so as an application. But it's originally about Israel, But they, Israel, have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now that, that is a, a really important uh, Old Testament citation. That is from Isaiah 53, verse 1. What do you know about Isaiah 53? Anything? Isaiah 53 is one of those chapters where you might almost think it's a New Testament text. It describes the, the death of the suffering servant. And if, in fact, I had a friend in seminary who lived in New Jersey, and there was a big Jewish population, and he would go, and his evangelism technique was to read Isaiah 53 to them, and the Jews in New Jersey there, I forget which community, would say to him, don't read your New Testament to us. And he'd say, this is, this is not New Testament. This is Isaiah. This is your prophet. It so much captures Jesus dying on the cross that if you, don't, if you don't know where you're listening from, or if you don't know it's Isaiah, you would think it's a New Testament passage. And at the very beginning, in Isaiah 53, 1, it starts with who has believed our message. And Paul goes back there and says, it's just a prophetic truth. That many in Israel will not believe the gospel. Our own prophets prophesied when, 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 our, when our greatest prediction of the crucifixion of Jesus, perhaps other than Psalm 22, is it was prophesied, it was prefaced with a warning, who's going to believe this? And, and the focus of Isaiah 53:1 is, who's going to believe this in Israel? And Paul is bringing that Scripture to bear on his argument that there are many in Israel that Israel, by and large, except for the remnant, has rejected the Gospel just as it was prophesied they would. Then we go on, and Paul just sort of recaps what he said in verse 17. I like a a hard pause after the word so. So... Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. There's There's nothing new there. That's just what we've already established. And so that whole verse, verse 17, is just setting us up for two questions that Paul is going to ask. And here's what Paul's trying to do. Paul's trying to answer, why has Israel rejected the gospel? And that's what this whole passage, this whole chapter 10, is about. I know it's so nice about anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and faith comes from hearing. And we can apply that to our own evangelism efforts, and you can take your Gentile, non believing friends there and show them that. And it, it is applicable. But really, all of that is in service to what Paul's really trying to talk about is why is Israel rejecting this gospel? Why are they choosing righteousness based on law? Why are they not choosing a righteousness based on faith? And then he turns to Israel in his letter and he says, don't you tell me that it's not clear. Don't you tell me that you haven't heard it. You don't have to go to heaven or down into the abyss. Jesus has brought it close to you by the incarnation and resurrection. Then the next step, he says, so we better get out there and make sure that every Jew has heard the gospel. Maybe that's why they're rejecting the gospel. They haven't heard it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how are they going to believe if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear if nobody preaches? And how is somebody going to preach if nobody is sent? The context of that beautiful evangelistic passage is Israel. How's Israel going to believe the gospel if we don't evangelize Israel? Verse 17. I'm recapping because this is a difficult chapter. Hopefully you're getting the flow of it. Verse 17, Paul takes a breath and he recaps. Okay, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, last two parts of today's sermon, two questions, where Paul drills down and answers both of his questions, actually. He drills down, why has Israel rejected the gospel? Question number one is verse 18. So I ask, have they not heard? Because if they haven't heard the gospel, they would have some excuse for rejecting it. Maybe it's our fault, says Paul. We haven't got it to them. But then he answers it. Oh, indeed they have. Israel's heard the gospel, says Paul. And then he quotes Psalm nineteen four: Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Now, this is a tricky citation, because in, if you go back to Psalm 19, you'll find out that it's about general revelation, that God has created the universe in such a way that no one can deny that there is a God, because the word of God's existence is coming or has gone out to all the world through nature, through the sun, moon, and stars. So how can Paul use that here? General revelation does not preach the gospel. The gospel is not general revelation. It's what's called special revelation. What's Paul's point? Paul's point is the gospel has gone out so that it is as well known as general revelation. The gospel, by the time Paul writes Romans, has gone out to Israel so comprehensively that any Jew rejecting the gospel has as much right to reject the gospel as he or she would have rejecting the existence of God based on general revelation. That's his point. The gospel had gone out to Israel. And, and, and really the subtext which we're going to get to is if there are Gentiles coming to faith... That's only because the gospel has already gone to Israel. Because the gospel is first for Israel and then the world. So if there are Gentiles coming to faith, then Israel must have already rejected it. Or at least heard it. That's his point. So the gospel is as well known to Jews, when Paul writes this, as general revelation. The existence of God by nature is to the world. Second question, verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand the gospel? So they've heard it. So it must be that they did not understand it. And then he answers his question, and he cites Moses in Deuteronomy and then Isaiah in Isaiah 65. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, with a foolish nation I will make you angry. What's Paul's point here? Deuteronomy thirty-two, twenty-one is a part of what's called the Song of Moses. After Moses had given the law to the people, he, he wrote this anthem, and he said, I want you to teach this anthem to everyone in Israel, and everyone should know it. And basically, <laughs> it's not funny, but it's it's tragic. After giving the law, this anthem, the song of Moses, is you're going to fail. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. You're not going to believe. You're not going to do it. You're going into exile because you're going to fail. And you're going to break covenant. And you're going to fail. God has been good to you, and you're just rejecting him. You don't get it. And in the middle of that anthem is in your failure in your stubbornness in your rejection I'm going to reach out to you this is in the Song of Moses by making you jealous of other nations I'm gonna show my covenant love and faithfulness to other nations and they're gonna make you jealous so in other words yes Israel failed to understand they failed to understand their own scriptures But implicit here is God is going to retrieve them and this is just planting the seed for next week by making them jealous of God's love and faithfulness to other nations. Then we go to Isaiah, verse 20. Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So that's about Gentiles, and then but, uh, verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Sa- it's the same concept as the Song of Moses. Israel has rejected God, but he has been found by other nations who were not even seeking him. And the context in Isaiah 65 is this. God has delivered his people from exile in Babylon. He's given them back Jerusalem, and for the most part, they're just as sinful as they were before the exile. They've learned nothing. And so God in Isaiah um, 56 through 66 begins to prophesy that he's going to add eunuchs and Gentiles to the chosen people of God. And then in Isaiah 65, it's this climactic chapter in the whole book where it's promising the new heavens and the new earth. And how, who's going to populate this new heavens and this new earth? Well, there's going to be uh, people from Gentile nations and there's going to not be some people from Israel because there's people who were not seeking me, who found me and there are some people who I've held my hands out to and they've rejected me. How does Paul therefore answer his question? Did they just not understand? Paul says exactly. They didn't understand. There's a veil over Israel's eyes except for the precious elect few who form a remnant That remnant is saved and the veil is lifted and they believe the gospel and they're saved. Gentiles are saved likewise. But for the most part, Israel has put a veil over her face. God has put a veil over her face and she has not understood the gospel even though Israel has heard it. So one more time, let's summarize this difficult chapter there are two ways to try to attain righteousness there's righteousness based on law do what is right and you'll earn eternal life and then there's righteousness based on faith believe in the Lord Jesus Christ his death and resurrection believe in the gospel and you will attain righteousness righteous legal standing before God and righteous nature eternal life resurrection from the dead Point number two, anyone who tries to attain righteousness based on law will fail. Anyone who tries to attain righteousness based on faith will succeed. Therefore, we need to make the gospel known to all so that all have an opportunity to accept or reject it. And this is that great paradox of election. God elects, but he calls us to go out and to evangelize, to preach the gospel. This paradox between divine sovereignty and human responsibility that we'll never fully understand this side of glory. That finally, except for a remnant, Israel has rejected the gospel. But it's not because they haven't heard it. It's because they did not understand it. Now, this is the last question which sets us up for next week. What do we do with this information? There's a fork in the road. Either we say, therefore, the church replaces Israel or God's not yet done with Israel. Nothing in chapters 9 and 10 has said anything about the church replacing Israel. So the question I leave us with this morning is has God rejected Israel? We know that Israel has rejected God but is that the same thing as God rejecting Israel? Has God replaced Israel with the church? That's next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this, um, this seems like a pretty steep mountain to climb together. I pray that you would tether us all together as we climb up this and we can all wrestle with these ideas come to a place of understanding at the very least Lord I pray that you would remind us all that faith comes or righteousness comes by faith and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved therefore we must go out and share the gospel God help us to be your ministers of reconciliation in a dead and dying world so that many might attain righteousness by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.